Good morning, Cornerstone. February 24th, 2022. Vladimir Putin gave a speech as his troops prepared to march into Ukraine. And in his speech, His reason at the time was that Ukraine was being led by a Nazi regime. And the entire government needed to be disposed of, and the nation needed to be brought under Russia's control. But then just a few days later, he explained again that his neighbor was becoming too cozy with his enemies. For the safety and security of his own kingdom, this Military operation was necessary and justified. A few more months into the war, Putin said that he only invaded his neighbor because there were Russian speakers in their midst who needed to be set free. They were being oppressed. And so his military operation was, in fact, a humanitarian mission. And as the fight has drawn out over the months, the explanations for the war continue to evolve every day. And all anyone can know for certain at this point is that a lot of people have died and many more will expire before this war ends. And nobody, not even the one who started the war himself, nobody really knows what this war is all about. A similar thing can be said of mankind. And the apparent war that we find ourselves in with God. Did you know, were you aware of the fact that man is at war with God? Did you know and were you aware that there has been an ongoing violent and continuous war going on between heaven and earth since our exile from the Garden of Eden. Did you know that we, mankind, is at war with God? This is the only conclusion one can draw when we evaluate this second phrase from Romans chapter 5 and verse 1. Where Paul says, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Peace. Arene. It means tranquility. And that's a good thing. But the opposite of tranquility is turmoil, chaos, instability, and unrest. And this is what we had with God before we found peace. Peace. Arene. It means equanimity and calmness. But the opposite of calmness is panic and anxiety and terror. Peace. Arene. It means harmony, it means serenity. But the opposite of serenity and harmony is upheaval and uproar. Peace is the absence of open hostility. But 
whenever hostility is present, whether between man and man or between man and God, wherever hostility is present, we live in a constant state of war. When did this war begin between man and God? The war between man and God began on the day Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The hostilities between man and God began on the day humanity determined that it was possible to topple God from his throne and to usurp his power, to usurp his authority, and most importantly, to deprive God of his glory. The late philosopher Thomas Hobbes makes this observation relating to the presence of war among men. He says that in the nature of man, we find three principal causes of all hostility. First, competition. Secondly, distrust. And third, a fight for glory. These are the three primary causes for every fight, every disagreement. From the war in Ukraine right now to the schoolyard bully, these are the three primary reasons for all fighting in the world. In the first instance, humans are always and forever in competition, the one against the other. It is human nature. For every person to believe that he has a right to everything that exists in the world. And that's not an incorrect assumption. God has given this world to all men, all women. And each of us has just as much right to this world's resources as anyone else. The world belongs to all of us. God said to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and all the living things that crawl on the earth. Subdue it. But there were only two of them when God gave this command, Adam and Eve, so sharing the earth wasn't a big complicated feat. There was enough for the two of them. Today, there are over 8 billion people on this earth. And if we are to follow God's command today, we all have to find a way to share this world's resources, recognizing that every human has the same mandate from God as each other, to be fruitful, to replenish the earth, to subdue the earth. In other words, every human has just as much ownership of all things in this world as any other soul. And this is why we compete. This is why the environmentalist is constantly chopping at the heels of big oil and big industry. Because he realizes, and rightly so, that every ounce of oil that is beneath our feet, every molecule of oxygen, every tree and every animal belongs to all of us. And so hostility ensues, competition ensues. This hostility stretches all the way from the oil fields in Texas to the very gates of heaven herself. 
Because while we're more than happy to be given such immense power over the birds of the air and the fish of the seas, mankind refuses to be held accountable for any damages that this earth incurs when we misuse it. We want, the, we want the power, we want the glory, but not the responsibility. We refuse to be accountable. No matter how much land a man may own, no matter how much of the world's resources she requires, she sees no need, no responsibility to share any of her possessions with anyone else. And she will become extremely hostile if anyone suggests that she has more than enough for herself and that she needs to allow others to share in her bounty. Greed, competitiveness. Jesus shares people like this, these competitive people. People who've been blessed to subdue the earth, but then refuse to share its bounties with others. In Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 23, Jesus tells the story. He says, now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, enjoying himself in splendor, glory, every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. Longing to be fed from the scraps which fell from the rich man's table. Not only that, the dogs also were coming and licking Lazarus's sores. It happened one day that the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's arms. And the rich man also died and was buried. Listen to what Jesus says. And in hell he raised his eyes, being in torment. The rich man wouldn't share. He couldn't share because he saw Lazarus, he saw this poor, decrepit man as his competition. He couldn't afford to allow Lazarus to get a leg up. He couldn't fathom giving his competition a slice of bread. And thus his ignoring Lazarus was interpreted by the only one who knows it was interpreted as an act of hostility. His greediness and his stinginess were interpreted by God as hostility. Hostility toward the poor and hostility toward God himself. This rich man may not have realized it, but in his neglect to feed and to help the less fortunate, he was refusing the lordship of God himself. He was declaring war on the sovereign one. Thomas Hobbes observes then that we make war against one another because we are in regular competition and we make war against one another because we distrust each other. We lock our doors at night, which is a sure sign of distrust. We carry weapons to defend ourselves against one another because we do not trust one another. We are prepared to defend ourselves at all and any cost and at any time even when there seems to be no hostility. We do it because we do not trust each other. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. There are myriads of people in the world who mean us no good. We have good reason to be distrustful. Carjackings and muggings, murders and robberies are occurring every day and more and more it seems as time goes by. But I'm just making this observation that we live in this world in a constant state of distrust. 
which means that war is always on the horizon and hostility is so thick it can be cut with a knife. Distrust. But the truth is that long before we started distrusting one another, we first distrusted God. That's what happened in the Garden of Eden, didn't it? When Satan convinced Eve that God was jealous of her, he told Eve, God knows that on the day you eat this fruit, you will become like him. And the seeds of distrust were planted in her heart, and she and her husband ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And because of their actions, distrust of God has been implanted into our DNA. The world is leery of God. The world is leery of God's motives, jealous of God's power, uncertain even of God's existence, and neglectful of God's mandate. There is an open hostility against God among all humanity. The atheist declares that there is no God, while the agnostic callously evades the task of contemplating God altogether. God is ignored among most people. And there may be no greater spite. There may be no greater sign of hostility than to refuse to acknowledge another person's existence. There is an open and ongoing hostility between man and man and between man and God because of competition, because of distrust. But finally and most importantly, there is hostility between man and God because of man's desire for glory. Interestingly enough, Thomas Hobbes views our desire for glory to be the least and the lowest excuse for hostilities. He calls glory a trivial thing where each person desires and almost requires to be honored by all others, our need to be exalted above others, our visceral response to the slightest indignities. We're easily offended by nothing more than a negative word spoken against us. We become indignant when we think we're being taken for granted. We are sick to our stomachs when we feel like we're being undervalued. We, all of us, and all of humankind have an unquenchable desire for glory. We sometimes even want credit for things we didn't even do. We want to be honored and set at the head of the table. We want to know that our opinions matter and our presence makes the greatest difference. Of all these three causes of hostility among men, this is the one that has caused the most hostility between man and God. Because the glory that we seek and the glory that we believe we deserve is the glory that belongs to God alone. This is the sinful habit that initiated the hostility that exists into this very hour between God and man. Mankind has not learned any lessons from our first parents. We still desire to be God. And the main reason why most people will not come to God whether they're aware of it or not, is because they view their submission to God as an affront to their own personal glory. 
a glory that is not theirs by right, but by force. The disobedient act of Adam and Eve in the garden offended God on many levels. But the highest level of offense to God is that they sought to usurp his glory. What is glory? The Gospel Coalition defines the glory of God as the magnificence, the worth, the loveliness, and the majesty of God's many perfections. And this is what our first parents were striking at when they revolted against God in the garden. And it remains the primary cause and the root of the disagreement that has simmered between God and man to this very hour. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Jesus Christ came into the world to set the captive free, to make known the love of God for all of humanity. Christ's mission was a mission of mercy toward man. But the mission of Jesus Christ is also a mission to restore the glory. The glory of God that has been illegally usurped back to its rightful owner. Jesus Christ came into the world to restore the glory of God. Because God is the only one who knows how to wield his glory for the benefit of others and to the detriment of none. This is the problem that mankind has. That while we have usurped the glory of God, the glory of God is too much for man to bear. He doesn't know how to use it for good. Mankind cannot master the challenge of sustaining the glory of God without becoming contaminated, lifted up in pride, arrogance, and hubris. This is our sickness. That the glory we possess, the glory our first parents sought to acquire, that glory is killing us. Because our temporal frames cannot stand beneath the weight of the glory of God. Jesus came into the world to relieve us of this unlawfully claimed glory, to return it to the only one who is worthy of its crown. Jesus speaks a lot in the Gospels about his mission to help us. But I find one occasion where Jesus speaks to God's interests in saving mankind. We like to consider in our religious ponderings, we like to consider the idea that God came into the world with no interest of his own, but solely for our interest. But while it's true that God came into the world to save us, God also sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to reclaim his glory that had been stolen in the garden and forced into the service of our enemy. A glory that unregenerate, unregenerate man still uses to his own hurt. We use the glory of God to become rich. We use his glory to exercise power over others. We use the glory of God to make waste of his world. We even use the glory of God to make bombs that can destroy everything that exists. This is what we've done with the glory of God. This illegal glory that we usurped is literally killing us. 
But Jesus Christ came into the world to relieve us of this glory that we are so ill-suited to control. He says this in a very subtle and unemotional sort of way in Mark chapter 12, verse 14, where the Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and do not care what anyone thinks, for you are not partial to anyone, but you teach the way of God in truth. Let me ask you the question, Jesus. Is it permissible to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Are we to pay or not to pay? But Jesus, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius, a coin, to look at. And they brought him a coin. And Jesus said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to Jesus, it's Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, therefore, pay to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and pay to God the things that are God's. This is a profound statement that gives us a brief insight, a clear glimpse at God's deep concern and jealousy for his glory. What is it that belongs to God? Jesus saying here that mankind bears the image of God in our bodies and we bear the inscriptions of God in our heart, in our consciences, in our souls. And yet we have not given ourselves to him. We have taken the glory of God which is ourselves, and we have chained it to this world. We have tarnished God's glory with sin. And we have leased out the glory of God in exchange for temporary pleasures. Jesus came and said to us that we should give back what is rightfully God's. We should give God back his glory. When we give God back his glory, when we remove ourselves from the throne of our own lives, when we release ourselves and, and, and give up on possessing the glory of God, when we give back the glory to the one to whom it rightfully belongs, we will find freedom. God will be properly honored and we will have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, until unsaved men and women release God's glory, until mankind submits to God's sovereignty and the lordship of his son Jesus Christ, the hostilities of God toward man will not abate. And in God's own time, he will deliver ultimate retribution to every soul that neglected to renounce its claim upon what is rightfully and truly his own, his glory. And Jesus Christ has come into the world to broker peace. Jesus Christ has come into the world to be the broker of this peace agreement between God and man. Through Jesus Christ, both God and man can have a seat at the negotiation table and we can find a peace treaty among ourselves. This is what the children of God we have a peace treaty with God signed with the blood of Jesus Christ. We agree to give God back his glory. He agrees to give us eternal life. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Jesus Christ, the text says, we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. 
This grace of God represents God's willingness to excuse our missteps. This grace of God is God's ability to overlook our past infringements upon his glory. This grace of God is God's declaration that though we have robbed him of his rightful place and though we have sought to displace him from his own throne, he does not distrust us. He is not in competition against us. And all he wants is for us to give him back what we stole. Beginning at Eden and return to him the glory that he so generously has shared with us. And in return, in return, and this is what's so interesting to me. In return, God promises that if we will give him back his glory, he will give it back to us in the last day and we will become as he is for we will become one with him and this is what Paul the Apostle means when he says that we celebrate in hope of the glory of God he's not saying we celebrate because we hope that God will be glorified. God is already glorified what is he saying he's saying that we celebrate because we believe that we will be glorified with him. In another place, Paul says this way, that Christ in you is the hope of glory. Not of God's glory. Christ, Christ in you is the hope of your glory. Christ in you is the hope that one day you will be glorified with him. This is what God has promised us. The glory that we stole from God is of no use to us. In fact, just the opposite. This glory of God is the reason that we are being consumed, consumed by bitterness, consumed by sickness and disease, consumed by sin. Because we have in our possession a glory that belongs not to us, but to God. And this glory is in constant war against us and within us, and it destroys us from within. No matter how many towers we build, no matter, no matter how many kingdoms we create, no matter how much money we amass, no matter how much influence we may garner, the glory of God is only at home with God alone. And his glory continues to fight until the end to find its way back to the one who deserves to bear it. And yet this is the glory that God has promised to give to each one of us who believe. If we humble ourselves, if we subdue our carnal inclination and propensity toward power and glory. Because it is only those who do not desire the glory of God who are worthy to receive the glory of God. And this is the wisdom of Jesus Christ, whom Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6, already existed in the form of God. Yet Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He didn't lust after God's glory. He didn't try to use God's glory for his own ends. But Paul says Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. Then verse 9 of Philippians 4 says this, that for this reason also God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on Jesus the name which is above 
every name. Because Jesus did not try to usurp the glory of God by force. Because Jesus didn't seek to glorify himself like Adam and Eve did. Because Jesus was content to let God be God and himself become a lowly servant. Because of his humility, God exalted him. God has allowed Jesus Christ to share in his glory so much so that the two of them are forever one. Because you and I have come to Jesus Christ and accepted the terms of peace with God. And in so doing, we have rescinded our claims upon God's glory and we have accepted our lowly place. God will glorify us just as he's already glorified his only begotten son, Jesus Christ. And so we celebrate today, not because we have already been glorified, but we celebrate because we are assured that the day of our glorification will come and we will forever be one with the Lord, our God. What is man's greatest sin? man's greatest sin that Adam and Eve ate from the tree? Is that our greatest sin? Is alcoholism our greatest sin? Is lying or stealing our greatest sin? The greatest sin of all mankind is simply the glory and the honor of God. That we have dishonored God and that we have sought to take his place. If you're not saved today, you should understand this. That in your effort to be the own director of your own life, in your, in your propensity to desire to lead your own life and to think your own way and to see things the way you want to see them and to do what you want to do, what you are doing is that you are telling God that I do not regard you as being in control and I, will be my own God and I have taken your glory. You should understand that that is an assault and that is an affront against the kingdom of God and this is the reason that there is hostility between you and your maker. Humble yourself. Recognize that you are broken and that you do not know the way and repent. To repent simply means this, to admit that you do not know the way. To admit that you do not know what is best for your life and to trust God to give you life. To trust God to direct your life. To stop doing what is right and you're in your own eyes and desire to do what is pleasing to God. This is all it means to repent. Yes, it means to say, I'm sorry for my sins, but it means so much more than that. It means to make a conscious decision that from this day forward, I will not attempt to direct my own life and my own affairs, but I will seek God. I will acknowledge God in all of my ways and I will allow God, not myself, to direct my path. That's what it means to repent, to submit, to give God back the glory that is his and to bow the knee. 
to wait for his direction and instruction. Until then, there will be hostility between you and your maker. But the good news is that because Jesus Christ came into the world, because Jesus Christ by his own blood has brokered a peace agreement between us and our maker, you today can find peace with God. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, if you confess with your, mind, with your mouth that God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, you will be saved. If you only confess that God only deserves the glory and God deserves all of the power, all of the honor, and I none. Brothers and sisters, when you humble your own self, when you recommit to this each and every day, you honor God. The songwriter said, God is God and I am not. I can only see a part of the picture he's painting. God is God and I am man and I'll never understand it all because only God is God. This is what it means to repent, not just in word, but in our hearts and in deed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in awe and wonder of the steep price that you paid for our peace. We come to you this morning confessing that in many ways we still attempt to be God. In many ways we still attempt to usurp the glory that belongs to him and to use it for our own gain. We come before you this morning confessing once again that we recognize you, Jesus, as Lord, not only in word, but in our daily practice, in our daily lives. We desire to follow your plan and your will for each of our lives and not our own. Thank you for taking the glory of God off of our shoulders. Thank you, God, for returning us to our rightful place under God. Thank you for the peace that exists now between us and our God. Thank you for the harmony that we have with him, the goodwill that exists between us. Thank you for bringing us back to our right minds. Thank you for your peace. We give you glory for the great thing you've done for us. We pray, Lord God, that many more sons and daughters will hear this message and messages like it. And that they'll realize the immensity and the largesse of the gospel plan. That they'll come to understand that God is not simply angry because of, sin, of their sins, but because they have robbed him of his glory. Convict hearts today. Help us to see this bigger picture and repent. In Jesus' name.